Good morning. My name is Rob. My brother is a United States Marine. He has, um, he's been in every corner of, Af- of Afghanistan. Uh, he has protected and guarded embassies uh, all around the world. And right now he is on a WASP-class amphibious assault ship somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So he and I have had a lot of great conversations about uh, foreign policy, about the State Department in different countries, and you can imagine in today's you know, very subdued political climate, those are fairly boring <laughs> conversations. We've also talked about how difficult it is, and, and he's, he's given me a lot of, uh, sent me articles and videos and things about how difficult it is for military personnel to come back into civilian life and how hard that is. And, and he's shared with me a number of his uh, stories and, and people that he's known and their experiences, not necessarily a scientific analysis, but his experiences. And, and some of the things he said is that he's heard civilians, so when, when military personnel come back and then something happens and then they re-up to go back overseas with the militaries, he's heard civilians say things like, um, I guess you like war or you want to go fight, or, you know, things like that. And my brother is saying nothing could be further from the truth. People who have been in the military and they've been in conflict uh, generally hate it, and they never want to go back. It uh, doesn't mean that uh, they don't believe in it, that it's necessary at times, but it's still horrific. He said, no, the reason why, according to my brother, that a lot of military personnel go back is because when they go back, all of a sudden they're amongst people that get who they are. He said, when when you're in the military, you know who your commander is, you know what your mission is, you know who your teammates are. You come back here, who's the commander? I don't know, who's in charge? No idea. What are we doing? (laughs) Figure it out. (laughs) Every man for himself. What do you do do with that? How do you live with that? And so he said, when you go back in the military and you've been in a conflict situation where you've shared that bond and you can look somebody in the eye and you know that both of you, you're willing to die for each other and for that mission, there is a bond that is forged that will last for the rest of your life. I think that's the same kind of bond that we're talking about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. If you want to turn your Bibles there, Philippians 2, verse 19. We're going through the book of Philippians right now. And this morning, we're going to talk about Christ-centered friendship and specifically ask the question of how do I become this kind of friend? How do I become the kind of friend that um, when somebody else looks at me, that they, they don't feel like I don't get them? They feel the kind of love that Timothy and Titus and Paul and Epaphroditus and, and all of these different people, they felt and they shared amongst themselves. I want to be that kind of friend. Last weekend, I was in Montreal. It was a great time. So Montreal is a city of about 4 million people. Uh, mostly French-speaking. So Quebec, the province of Quebec, Canada, my wife and I, we were there from 2003 to 2014 starting French-speaking churches. My wife was born there. I became a Canadian citizen over the, the summer, which is pretty cool. So I'm a dual citizen, and so a lot of people say they want to hop in my baggage and luggage when they go back after the election. But anyway, <clears throat> I'm not going to make any political statements. So... But it's, it's great. Um, to, so, so just their brothers in Quebec um, that, that, that I love, that we've been in the trenches with, that we've wept together, that we've fought together, we've spilled blood together in a lot of different ways, just really painful times. Um, and at the same time, we've seen lives transformed together, communities that have heard the gospel together, churches planted together. Incredible. One of those brothers is, is François Turcotte. He is the director of the seminary. And just about Quebec, Canada, I mean, so 
size of Alaska, 8 million people, fewer evangelical Christians there than in Algeria. So just to get some context. And, and all across North Africa, France, most people have not heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And so when I sat down with my friend Francois, here he is with a um, well-known philosopher, Charles Taylor. Uh, they did an event together. We, we sat down together, Francois and I, and we talked about his vision for the little French-speaking seminary in Montreal. And he shared with me that their, their vision is to train 200 pastors over the next eight years. And the reason why is because over the next eight years, a hundred-something pastors are going to retire. And um, so if we're going to replace those pastors, there are no replacements. There are no resumes in Quebec. Like, so if a pastor steps out for some reason, there are no resumes. There's no one to step up. It's a completely different scenario. And, so, and then also, if we're going to plant churches, how are we going to do that if we don't train pastors? And so when Francois, when when we're talking about this vision, it's not about coming up with a cool vision for the seminary. It's about how in the world is the movement of the gospel going to not die, but flourish and thrive. And Francois, when we talk and we look at each other, I mean, he is willing to give his life for this cause so that the Quebecer people and the rest of the French-speaking world, places like North Africa, hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. Great brother. Great friendship. This guy... Yeah, this is Louis. Uh, he's about six foot four. This is a photo from the late 1970s. Uh, so Quebec, Canada, French speaking. Uh, they went through a, a time where for about two or three centuries, the English speaking minority ruled over the French speaking majority, very similar to the apartheid situation in South Africa, which is surprising. And so he was a French speaker and he hated English speakers. And there was a movement uh, for Quebec to become its own country, a separatist movement. And so his passion was to kill all English speakers. So he personally was not involved in violence. We had friends who planted bombs, kidnapped people, and were involved in various terrorist activities. People did die and lives were lost. And he was applauding that whole entire thing until in the early 1980s at a Christmas Eve service, at a Catholic mass on Christmas Eve, God broke through to his heart and he realized for the first time in his life that for God so loved the world. The entire world, every single person, himself, and even the English speakers. And that was a radical moment for him. And, and, and when he turned to Christ, he realized that he was willing to give his life for a political movement. And then realized the cause of the gospel is so much greater. And so he gave his life to Christ and to follow Christ. And, and here he is uh, at his wedding Instead, front and center, he's about six foot four. Don't you love that <laughs> style? Here he is, he and I together in Quebec. Today, he's the director of the Association of Churches in Quebec, and we talked last, um, last weekend, we were together, and he said, Rob, when I was younger, I was willing to, to lay bombs. I was willing to give my life for this political, political movement. Why would we not be willing to give our lives for something so much greater, loving others in the name of Christ because we were loved by Christ? An awesome transformation. And we see that today in our text. We see these kinds of friends who are willing to love others in the name of Christ. We see Paul, we see Timothy, the church at Philippi, and Epaphroditus. Let's pray. 
Father, this morning I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and that your, these words somehow through the work of your spirit would pierce hearts that need to be pierced this morning. Pray that there would be repentance as we turn away from sin and turn to you, that there would be tears, and also that as we see how great and mighty and awesome you are, that there would be overflowing joy and we would run jumping and leaping out of here as we realize how great of a God you are and that we have the privilege of being your children. Please work over the next 30, 40 minutes and transform lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Paul, if you've been around a church for a while, you kind of know his story. His name was Saul at the beginning, and he thought that he was doing God a service by, uh, through murderous hatred, killing every Christian that he got his hands on. And so he was going from city to city, imprisoning, torturing, and murdering Christians. That was his, his, his desire. And doing God is serving God doing it. So a lot of people who are involved with ISIS today, who, who a lot of them are very sincere in what they think they're serving God as they're killing people. That was Paul before he, um, when he was called Saul. Until he met Jesus, he was walking on the road to, to Damascus, and all of a sudden Jesus showed up and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul fell on the ground, and he looked up and he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. And from that day forward, he was transformed, just like my friend Louis was. And he became a follower of Christ and someone who proclaimed Christ and was willing to lay his life down out of love, radical love for others, rather than killing others in the name of God. Radical transformation. Well, his friend Barnabas um, invited him. There was a fledgling new church in the city of Antioch right here. And they needed help. So Barnabas went and got Paul and dragged him to Antioch and said, we need to help these people. So for, for about a year, they were working and preaching and encouraging and building up the body there. And they were, they were um, one day they were together worshiping and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said to the church, all right, now set apart for me Paul and Barnabas and send them out. Can you imagine that? The Holy Spirit says, all right, set apart for me Ryan and Dan and send them out. And so everybody else they've been pouring their lives into over the last few years, that you better step up, right? It's time. That's what happened in Antioch. Praise God. It was the first, as far as we know, the very first time in the history of humanity that it was an intentional church planting movement where people were sent out to start new churches. And this is what happened. So Paul and Barnabas and a young man by the name of John Mark, they hopped down to the port city of Seleucia, took a boat to Salamis, they went to a synagogue, they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, and no one listened. So, they moved on. Next city, the city of Paphos, and there they were in front of the governor who was ruling that area. His name was Sergius Paulus, and they began sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, the fact that God came to this earth in the person of Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day, and if we put our faith and trust in him, he takes the sin and, and pride and self-centeredness off of our shoulders and puts it on the shoulders of Jesus, what, what that means is that there will no longer be any judgment on us because God's wrath is directed towards Jesus on the cross. And then we become children, sons and daughters of God. We receive his spirit. We become part of his kingdom. Our life is transformed right now. And then one day we will be resurrected with immortal bodies and we will live with him for all of eternity. 
And that's the message they were preaching. With a, there's a problem, though. This one, this magician named Elimas was confronting them and fighting with them. And so Paul, he pulled a thing that only Paul could do, right? He turned and rebuked the magician and blinded him. You reread that a couple of times. What? Yeah. And then a church was planted, and they said, all right, our job is done here. Let's go. So they moved up to Perga. I mean, this is, this is what was happening. This is the story. They moved to Perga, and... John Mark decides to leave. The text says he abandoned them. So it was only Paul and Barnabas. Okay, we're going to continue on this mission that the Holy Spirit sent us out. They went to Pisidian Antioch, and they went into the city. And at the, the synagogue, they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The entire city almost came to listen to them. A huge swath of people, a huge crowd of people put their faith in Jesus Christ. And as the positive response for the gospel continued to raise, the negative reaction against the gospel also went up. And so the Jewish leaders were jealous because Paul was getting all the attention. And so they stirred up opposition to Paul and Barnabas, but the church was planted. Their job was done. Let's go to the next city. So they did. So they went to Iconium. In Iconium, they began to preach the gospel again. And again, the entire city, they're listening to them, to, to them, and a huge crowd of people put their faith in Jesus Christ. The text says the city was divided to the point that there was murderous hatred against Paul and Barnabas. In fact, there were even plots to murder him that were put together, some kind of a hitman scenario. And Paul and Barnabas said, well, the church is planted. Let's move on. So they did. All right. So they went to Lystra. They walk into the city of Lystra, and as they walk through the gates, they see next to the gates a man who had been physically handicapped since he was uh, born, as far as we know. And Paul heals him. Well, the city goes crazy. I mean, they, see, they know this man. So they start freaking out. They said, the gods have visited us, right? <laughs> this is amazing. And so the people, they, 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 they want to start sacrificing sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, bowing down to worship them. And Paul and Barnabas says, no, 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 we're not gods. We are servants of the Most High God and begin preaching the gospel to them. Well, as they're going through this process, there are these people from Iconium who still hated Paul and Barnabas and one of them dead. They came down to Lystra and they stirred up the entire crowd against them and a mob formed. They grab Paul, they pull him into the middle of the city, they pick up fist-sized rocks and they start to throw them at Paul and they stone him to death. He's laying there on the ground underneath these rocks. They reach down, they grab him, they drag him out of the city, outside of the city, they drop him in a heap. They go back in the city. The people who had put their faith in Christ and Barnabas, they go out and they gather around Paul. Wait a second. He still has a heartbeat. He's alive. He was just unconscious. He wasn't dead. And Paul, what is he? He, he kind of wakes up. He gets up. And he limps back into the city. And this, this goes on and on and on. And Paul and Barnabas continue to go from city to city. And they're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there, there are crowds and there are riots and there's violence. And they're thrown in prison and they're whipped. And they keep going. And finally, they show back up in Antioch. They go back to Antioch and they tell the stories. And the people in Antioch, I mean, this is amazing, full of joy. This is, are you, this is an action film, right? This is, this is incredible what God is doing. It's, it's, it's excruciatingly difficult. 
our lives are on the line, but man, God is transforming city after city after city after city after city. This is amazing. So a little, sometime later, Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch, and Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back. We need to go back and visit these towns and these cities and these churches and find out how they're doing. And Barnabas says, yes, great, I'll grab John Mark and let's go. And Paul says, we're not taking John Mark. And Barnabas says, why not? He's a quitter. And, and, the, and the text says there was such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that they separated ways. So Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul took another formidable leader named Silas. And uh, Barnabas and, and John Mark went to Cyprus. Uh, Paul and Silas, they went back to Asia Minor, and they began to visit these cities again. And we see later on that there was a restoration. And God did heal that, that relationship. But I, I get that. Um, I, there were times in Quebec uh, with different leaders that... Um, you know, some of the scars that I have are from them. Some of the scars they have are from me. We had a couple of really rough years in Quebec. We stuck it out because we both love Jesus. If it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't have stuck that thing out. I, I can get that. I understand that. And we still love each other today. That's pretty incredible. So Paul and Silas, they're traveling through Asia Minor. Can you imagine what it must have been like for them when they walk up to Lystra? I mean, do you think Paul's, like, his pulse started racing a little bit, started breathing heavily, maybe a little bit of anxiety, like, okay, are we going back in? Remember last time? They walk up to the city. He sees this, the place where he had been on the ground. They walk through the gates, and they see the man, the place where the man was, the handicapped man that was healed. They walk into the city. They see the, the stones that had been thrown at Paul, perhaps. But this visit was to be a very different visit. On this day, on that day, Paul met one of the men that would be one of the best friends of his entire life. He met with the church, and they told him about this guy, this incredible guy named Timothy. He's really young, all right, but man, he's amazing. The people in Lystra say he's amazing. The people in Iconium say he's incredible. Paul, you've got to meet this guy. Paul meets him. Yeah, he's a pretty cool guy. All right, loves Jesus. But don't miss this. Timothy was from Lystra. Timothy was from the city where Paul was stoned to death. So the believers in Lystra, the believers in Asia Minor, and Timothy, they had no illusions about what it meant to follow Jesus Christ. They knew that if we turn to Christ, he gives us life and we may lose ours. Very clear. And we can, we can respond to that and say, yeah, that's crazy. Their response was, that will be done. I still turn to you. You are the only one who can give me eternal life. You are a good God. I trust you. Jesus said, pick up your instrument of execution and follow me. All around the world today, there are parts of the world where this is the same, exact same scenario. Could, play. could you imagine going to Saudi Arabia? Could you imagine going to other parts of Asia, the Middle East, North Africa, and going from city to city and publicly preaching Jesus Christ? Uh, probably have a lystra on our hands, right? People would, would freak out. Riots? Probably. So in a lot of parts of the world, following Christ and the price and the cost of following Christ has not changed. But you know what? And I ask myself this, that maybe, maybe we've changed 
I mean, I, I wonder, and I, I, sometimes I'm afraid that I, I've been so isolated from persecution for, for the name of Jesus that, that I, I forget that, no, that's part of the call, is to lay my life down for Christ, to be willing to do that. And there's a, there's a, a father in... Um, a desert father in the fourth century, he said this. He said, just as bees are driven out by smoke and their honey is taken away from them, so a life of ease drives out the fear of the Lord from a man's soul. That terrifies me. I pray, God, do whatever you have to do. Bring any kind of difficulty into my life that pushes me to you. So I'm dependent on you only, whatever you have to do. So Timothy joined Paul's team, and it was, it was Paul and Silas and Timothy and then Pastor, I mean, sorry, Dr. Luke, and they began traveling around and, and pre- preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and something strange happened in Acts 16. In Acts 16, they wanted to go east, and the Holy Spirit stopped them. They tried again. The Holy Spirit stopped them. So they went west. And and I know what it feels like to be stopped. I get it. December 17th, last year, found out we had cancer. We had to stop. That's part of, of following Christ in a broken world. But... The Holy Spirit stopped them. I don't, we don't know how. We don't know. We just know what he did. They went down to Troas, and they went, well, what do we do now? This port city, and that's when Paul has the vision. Remember the vision? The man from Macedonia says, come, come and help us. And so Paul's like, hey, guys, I know what we got to do. You need to go to the region of Macedonia. And so they hop in a boat. They cross uh, the river here, or the, the bay and they go to the principal city in Macedonia. They show up in Philippi. They're looking probably for the man from the vision, right? Where's the man from the vision who called us? Well, they find Lydia and some women by a river, and they preach the gospel to her, and she and her household put their faith, her faith in Christ. They find a slave girl who just keeps yelling and screaming at them for days at a time until finally the apostle Paul, he, he drives out the demons. And her owners were so angry because she had been telling the future and making them a lot of money. And so they stir up a riot and the entire city is in an uproar. Another Lystra situation. What's going to happen here? They have to be fighting with anxiety from time to time as well. That has to be a part of what's going through. They're human beings. I, gotta th- I have to think that in, in Philippians 4, when Paul says very clearly in Philippians 4, 2, do not be anxious about anything. And he's probably telling himself that, right, as he's walking into Lystra, as this is happening. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. I'm presenting this to you, God, and I'm receiving your peace. It transcends all understanding. It's guarding my heart. Okay, I'm, I'm going to proclaim the gospel without fear. Philippi's in an uproar. Paul and Silas are taken to prison. They are whipped. And what happens? They're in prison. It's midnight, and what are they doing? We know the story, right? Some of you? Yeah, they're depressed. No, they're singing. Because what what happened? I mean, I I don't know exactly why uh, all of the ramifications, but I can imagine because of this riot, the entire city knows that Paul and Silas are in prison because they cast out a demon from this slave girl in the name of this person named Jesus. So the name of Jesus is being spread all across the city. That's a pretty good reason to be 
rejoicing as your back is bleeding. And around midnight, there's, a, there's an earthquake, their chains fall off, uh, the doors open, and the jailer jumps out, and he looks, and he pulls out his sword to kill himself because he knows he's going to be executed if the, the, the prisoners get out. And Paul says, no, 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 don't kill yourself, we're all here, we're all here, we're all here. And, and the jailer says, okay, who are you? And, and Paul shares who he is comes out, all right, I'm, tell me what you're all about. He shares the gospel with him, the jailer and his household. They put their faith in Christ, and there you go. You've got Lydia, you have the slave girl, you have the jailer, and that's the core group for the, city, the, the church in Philippi. Great core group, right? Great church planting strategy. I mean, let's cast out a demon, start a riot, get whipped. Let's do it. I don't know, I, I wasn't in my church planting class. Not the, one, not the ones I teach either. But that's what God did. That's how he started the church. 10 or 11 years later, Paul, as far as we know, he was in Rome. He's under house arrest. He'd been continuing to plant churches and send teams of people, sometimes up to 10, 11, 12, 15 people traveling with him from place to place. He was not a lone ranger, ever. He always tried to have teams of people with him, but then all of a sudden he's in Rome and... um, and I go back to my, my brother in, in what he was talking about in the military in the experiences of a number of his friends coming back to civilian life and feeling like they're surrounded by people but feeling alone. Feeling like there's nobody here who gets who I am. They don't get what I'm about. They don't understand what I'm going through. And I've got to think that the Apostle Paul must have been feeling like that in Rome at some point. Alone and thousands of miles from the churches and the people and, and the brothers, the sisters that he had, they'd risked their lives together. And then Timothy shows up. Can, can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that must have felt like when Timothy showed up? Timothy! Wow! See, that scar, that's from Lystra. Yeah, I've got another scar here from Philippi. How about you? Yeah, you got a new one. Oh, wow. Remember Troas? Yeah, Thessalonica. Remember that story? That must, that must have been such an incredible reunion when Timothy came and saw Paul. And then a little bit later, this other guy by the name of Epaphroditus, another old friend and co-worker from Philippi, he had made the 1,500-mile trek from Philippi all the way to Rome with a huge bag of gold coins. You know, no 911, no patrol cars. You just better make it through. So he came with a gift, a large sum of money to help Paul so that Paul could continue. With, uh, under house arrest, there was, there was no way to, um, they, they didn't serve meals, um, so he had to find his own meals. And then secondly, he came from, with news from Philippi at the same time. And so it, was just, it must have been amazing. And Paul says that here uh, in, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. He talks about his relationship with Timothy and with Epaphroditus and with Philippi, the church at Philippi. And we see that. And Epaphroditus, he comes with two main big questions. And a lot of little ones, but two big questions. First of all, Paul, you're our spiritual father. Paul, you're the one who has invested in us for years. Paul, you're the one that we've been supporting you over the years as you've gone from city to city. And and we've had this this kindred spirit relationship, friendship, this deep bond between us. When are you going to come back and help us? Can you please come back? Because we're we're struggling here. 
There are people who are, who are putting pressure on us to abandon the gospel. There are, there are arguments and conflicts within the church. Can you come back and help us? Or can you send Timothy? And here in, in verse 19, we see Paul's response to the church at Philippi. And this is what he says. Verse 19, Philippians 2.19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Verse 24, hop down to 24. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He thinks he's going to be released. Verse 25, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. soldier. That must have been a kind of disappointing response to the church in Philippi. But even in the midst of that, we see his love. We see his affection. We see this deep bond of friendship. And when I look at the way Timothy and Epaphroditus, the kinds of friends they were for Paul, I want to be a friend like that. What? Actually, let's look at this text just for a second. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. Let's re- reading his response. That I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. And he says, I have no one else like Timothy. It, the, 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 in Greek, it's, it, they're like sold. Who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel, going from city to city and risking their lives again and again and again. Verse 23, I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. And, and, and one of the things, a few commentators, they, they wonder if if the church at Philippi had sent Epaphroditus to take Timothy's place to free up Timothy so he could go back and help the church at Philippi. There are a lot of different dynamics that could be going on here. But he's my brother, I love this, co-worker, so brother in Christ, the same father, the same king, co-worker, the same mission, and fellow soldier willing to risk his life for Paul and for the same mission of Christ as Paul is. This is a deep bond who is also your messenger whom you sent to care of my needs. Verse 26, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. It's interesting, he was not distressed because he was ill. He was distressed because the Philippians heard that he was ill. Fascinating. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, but not on him only. And and here again, a window into Paul's soul but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. He loved Epaphroditus. Verse 28, Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Verse 29, So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. And just on a, a quick parenthesis, there, there are... According to Roland Mueller, in his book, there are three different paradigms through which we can see the world. One is um, guilt-innocence, and that's an American Western version. One is honor-shame, and one is power-fear. And uh, commentators point out this text as an example of an honor-shame text, because if Epaphroditus had not made it with the gift, then he may have brought shame onto the Philippian church. And so Paul here, he makes it very clear. Listen, you need to honor Epaphroditus 
He has not brought any shame on you. He's an honorable man, and he's brought you honor because, verse 30, he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life. In Greek, he gambled his life. He intentionally risked something about his, his, his very life. We're not sure exactly how. But to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Maybe he got sick along the way, and he said, I'm going to make it anyway if I have to die doing it. We don't know exactly. Something like that. This illness. These are great friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Don't you want to be a friend like that? I want to be a friend like that. But why do so many friends disappoint? In our lives, and Paul answers that up here in verse 21, he says, for everyone looks out for their own interests. Paul's saying, you know what, guys? You know what our problem is? Your friend's problems is that they're looking out for themselves. Your problems is that you're looking out for their, yourself. And my problem is I'm looking out for myself. And that's why we disappoint each other. And how does this, and we, we've, this has played out before. I mean, have you ever had somebody, you meet, great connection, they invite you over to the house, and they're like, I've got this great business opportunity, and you need to be a part of it. And, and uh, you say, well, we're not really, really ready for that. Oh, okay, and you never see him again? Have you ever had that? I've had that experience a couple of times. You're like, okay, that, that was not a real friendship. Like, that was, that was something. They were out to get something from me. And then along from there, after that, maybe um, you've been in a situation where you spent time with somebody and spent time and spent time and spent time, and, and for, they never ask you how you're doing. They spent four or five hours on their issues, and, and you, you walk away drained, these draining friendships, and you're just like, yeah, it's, I, I don't want to be a friend like that. Epaphroditus and Timothy were not friends like that. They were looking out for Paul and to serve him. But what kind of friend does God call me to be? And what kind of God, friend does God call us to be? How can we follow in Timothy and Epaphroditus' footsteps, the kinds of friends they were for Paul? Well, he puts it up here as well. And these are those are who look after the interests of Christ. This is the kind of friend. What does that mean? Look after the interests of Christ. It's kind of cerebral, right? Can you, can you follow with me here? Paul, he tells us in verse 20, well, 21, he talks about, he gives him the example of Timothy. Timothy was looking out for the interests interest of Christ in that he was showing genuine concern for the welfare of the church at Philippi. Okay, so and Paul is equating these two. These are the same thing. If you jump down to verse 30, he said, because Epaphroditus almost died for the work of Christ. What was the work of Christ? To help Paul. That was the work of Christ. And so sometimes we can say, well, if, if I'm going to look out for the interests of Christ, I may say, all right, so what I need to do is I need to go up to a mountain and I need to pray for four hours and I need to read my Bible more. I need to start fasting. I need to start meditating. And, and Paul that is not what Paul is saying in this context. He's not saying that that is looking out for the interest of Christ. He's saying looking out for my brothers and sisters in Christ. That is looking out for the interests of Christ. Let's turn back to Matthew 25. Look at this. Matthew 25, verse 40. 
This is judgment later on, but I think we, can, we, we see the exact same principle here. Verse 40, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And, and what is he saying? He gives very specific examples. Jump back to verse 35. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. So I'm, I'm, I'm helping my brothers and sisters in Christ who are hungry. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. Just like Epaphroditus was coming to visit Paul. He's saying, this is looking out for the interest. As I look out for my brothers and sisters in Christ and I serve them sacrificially and I travel to meet their needs and to do whatever I can, I'm looking out for the interest of Christ. It's very practical. And even Paul in Philippians chapter 1, let's flip back there. Chapter 1, there's that famous you know, text, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gained. You know, that's, you know, imagine the, the, the flag on top of the mountain kind of thing. I don't want to make light of that, but, but I think we can misunderstand it. The first part of it, he says, for me to live is Christ. And then he explains what living for Christ means. If we jump down to verse 25, he says that I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress in joining the faith. For Paul, living for Christ meant serving the church at Philippi. For us, living for Christ is loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, we can make a dichotomy, right? We, we think, well, my spiritual life is when I do my devotions in the morning and I'm out praying and, and whatnot. And then I've got my, you know, kind of mundane or stupid or annoying regular life I have to get, you know. But in this text, it's saying, no, no, regular life, mundane activities as I'm serving and loving my brothers and sisters, that is serving the interests of Christ. It's when I get knee deep in the manure with my brothers and sisters, I'm looking out for the interests of Christ. What is a Christ-centered friend? And, and, and we've kind of drawn this out. Let's just, let's just uh, conclude here with three points. First of all, number one, I, I want to be this kind of friend. How can I be a Christ-centered friend to those around me? One of them is I love Christ. I love Christ, and I point others to Christ. Why is that? Because I know that as a friend, I'm going to disappoint you. I know that in a couple months, you're going to look at me and say, Rob, what was up with that? You got up and preached, then two months later, you totally disappointed. Well, I, I don't want to disappoint anybody, but I will, and I do. But you know what I know is I know that Christ will not disappoint I know that, so if I, and I know that I cannot heal you, I cannot fill you. I can't do that. Christ can. So as I, as I love Christ and I point you to Christ, I'm pointing you to somebody who can heal you and fill you and who will never disappoint you. And that's awesome. Last Sunday morning, I prayed with David Bourgoin at the church in St. Jerome that began in our house. Love this place. David and his wife, they put their faith in Christ about eight years ago. Uh, they're in their late 20s now, and, and he's had the privilege of leading multiple people to Christ, and, and just a, a man who loves Christ. We prayed together Sunday morning. I don't know many people who love Christ the way David does. He, he convicts me. 
just in, in the way he is, the way he lives life. We prayed together with a, a small group before the service, and he began praying. Now, the, the church in St. Jerome is a gritty church, all right? It's, it's downtown, um, and uh, there, there are, are business leaders and uh, school administrators and homeless and drug addicts all worshiping Christ together. And you walk in and you see it. And they have a very active security team. Not joking. But every week or two, there's some kind of skirmish kind of a thing, and the security's there just putting hands on people, praying with them, calming them down. And that's just part of being a church. So David prayed. We prayed together. This is normal. For every time I'm with David, he began praying, and he began weeping and saying, Father, please allow us to see these people the way you see them, to allow us to see that you shed your blood for each one of these people because of your love for them, regardless of who they are, give us that same vision of your love and allow us to love them the same way you do, please. And and tears are coming. David is a man who loves Christ and points people to Christ continuously. I want to be a friend like that. I serve others. As I'm going through my day, I'm praying, God, God, how can I serve this person? Whoever it is, whether it's somebody on the street, whether it's my wife or my child, it may be an 18-month with diarrhea or a 90-year-old with diarrhea. I don't know. How can I serve and love the people, God, that you bring into my life in these difficult situations? Again, here's the, this is where I was at last I, I'm feeling full, all right? I, I'm coming back there from last weekend, so you're getting stories from my last weekend. So this is the, the church building right downtown, and, and I mentioned drug addicts. There are a number of them, even active drug addicts, who are, who are attending the church. There's this one. Her name is Julie, and she would, uh, just about every Sunday, she would attend uh, the service. She was in her 30s, a meth addict. She had lost her Uh, custody of her son, and and rightly so. She couldn't take care of him or anybody else. And and the church just loved her, and they they helped her move and and, and went through this process. Well, over the last two years since I've been gone, like she has turned to Christ. She went into a detox program, radical transformation on the inside, on the outside. Uh, People helped her, got together to get her new teeth. Um, She's going through a process right now to be baptized, loves Christ, and the church loved her as a drug addict, through the process, and now loving and serving those around them. So we love our brothers and sisters, and that spills out over to other people as well. And that's part of being a friend that is centered on Christ. Mikael, uh, he, he had very serious drug addiction issues about four or five years ago. And David Bourgoin led him to Christ. The guy I just mentioned... And he's been going through this amazing process, an maturation process. He preached two weeks ago or three weeks ago at the church in St. Jerome. And he's a leader in numerous areas and just growing as a man of God. He, God can transform people. And the other people we see, we, we've lost hope in. The gospel is powerful enough to transform them. We can continue to serve people. This is the elder team. And, and what happens when you have a young movement, your elders aren't very old. It's funny because I go there to preach and I'm kind of one of the older, you know, elderly people there in one sense. There are a couple of people that are older than me, but it's fun. These are, but these are guys that we've been through the trenches. We've wept together. We've gone through difficult times together. 
serve together. But what is a Christ-centered friend? I'm willing to lay down my life. Philippians 1, I'm sorry, 2, verse 17, Paul pushes this forward. What does he say? He says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. He's saying, I am willing to die if it means a benefit for you. That's the kind of friend that Paul was to the Philippian church. But he was, he was, all he was doing was following Christ's example back in verse 8, who he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I love Jesus. I serve others. In my life, I'm willing to lay it down. When risking all for love of Christ and neighbor becomes normal, that's when gospel movements become transformational. When you say, yeah, God, take my life. Well, whatever that means for the good of those here in Littleton or around the world. Zach, uh, on the right-hand side, he, he, uh, he grew up in a Christian family and struggled, like, like a lot of us do, right? He's attending church, kind of doing the right thing, kind of reading his Bible once or twice a year. It's kind of dry, struggling with a lot of, lot of different you know, some, some pot th- issues, some pornography issues. He's married. Actually, he and his wife was the first... French wedding I had ever officiated. Really cool story. Well, about two years ago, something happened. And he was able to see the world through God's eyes. And from that point until today, not that he's perfect, but something is radically transformed in him. And he has seen that, well, God loves me. He died for me. And I had the privilege of sharing that with other people. And he and his wife, they're starting to ask questions like, what do we have to risk for the cause of the gospel? Like, we'll do whatever it is. If we need to sell our house to move to a different community, if I need to quit my job or take on another job. He sold, he loves, he's a mechanic and an electrician, and he loves to take old cars and restore them. But he realized that was taking up hours out of his week, so he sold his cars, and he's discipling people instead. I mean, just going through this process not that that's good or bad. That's a decision he made. He said, I, we've got to take, out, take some steps for the cause of Christ. And he and his wife, he's loving his wife and serving her uh, um, and, his, and his children and taking an active role as a, as a shepherd for his family and moving forward. We don't know where, that, where that's going to lead, but he just realizes, man, I'm on this earth as a son of the living God, and that is awesome. And I will do whatever he asks me to do as I serve him in my community, at my job, or quit my community or job, whatever that is. It's worth it. They're sending a couple, a young couple, to North Africa early next year to live there. They have a ministry working with handicapped people in North Africa, which is incredible. And, and they have two young children. And, and the wife, uh, Annalise, she got up in front of, the, well, they, they both got up in front of the church. And they were sharing the struggle of moving their family to North Africa. And she said, hey, I struggle with that in front of the church. She said, I when I think about bringing my family to North Africa, there's an incredible amount of fear. She said, and if you talk to me about my kids, I'll break down and cry right now. But she said that she did not want to be led by fear. She wanted to be led by Christ. We must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering, Christ's suffering, and triumphed over death And let us follow him patiently because we shall soon be partakers of his victory. You know why? Because Jesus will never disappoint. He is the friend that will never disappoint us.
He loved me. He pursued me. And he laid down his life for me and for you so that we could become children of the, of, of the living God. Give us his spirit and we can turn and love others the same way. Amen.